Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Sabrina Fabi, a globally renowned cosmetic dermatologist based in California of the USA. Dr. Fabi is an international speaker, clinical researcher, trainer, author, and the medical correspondent for Fox 5 San Diego. As Associate Clinical Professor of the University of California and also the Associate Research Developer of her practice, Dr. Fabi has been involved in some of the biggest clinical studies of injectable products, lasers, and sclerotherapy procedures. She has authored over 100 medical articles and co-authored 20 book chapters in cosmetic medicine. Hello, how are you? Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? We Good. are well and excited to see you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for waking up. Uh, no, no, I've, I've been up way you longer tell. than I should have been. <laughs> As you can tell, David's just rolled out of bed. He actually looks like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look wonderful. Thank you. So it's 5 p.m. in California, is that right? Well, I'm in Chicago right now. Ah. So it's 5 p.m. Uh. in Chicago, yes. 3 p.m. California. I know. What are you doing in Chicago? Are you with Steve at the moment doing some work? We have a CME event in two days. Nice. Excellent. And what are you guys going to be talking about? We're going to be doing um, biostimulation. <laughs> of course. The topic of the day. So, Sabrina, um, we've got mutual friends in um, Nicole Canaris and lots of other people, Subio. Um, you're yeah. based in California, but you often do work with Steve in Chicago. Is that right? Correct. Excellent. And tell us about your background. So, I mean, I was just reading your LinkedIn bio. It's pretty damn impressive. But tell us more about, you know, what your practice is like and and when you um, studied and why you chose to become a dermatologist. So I have uh, been practiced now for 10 years in uh, San Diego, and uh, my practice is 100% cosmetic. I uh, did a dermatology residency here in Chicago. I'm originally from Chicago. I went into dermatology because I had horrible acne, and I recognized the impact uh, that skin conditions can have on just the overall self-esteem and mood of of younger people, uh, but even older people, um, and the impact that interventions can have on improving uh, the mind and mood of many people and their confidence. And so now in aesthetics, we know how much that resonates. But at the age of 12, I didn't realize that. Uh, and so I wanted to go into medicine and I wanted to be a dermatologist. And then along the way in residency, I realized that many of our drugs that we use um, tend to take many months to have an effect. Um, and can be disappointing to our patients uh, as they get frustrated when you don't get a hundred percent improvement. Uh, and I really don't have control. I'm at the mercy of these prescription topicals and orals. And so I wanted to do a fellowship in cosmetics, um, in cosmetic dermatology with a focus on lasers so that I could essentially treat um, acne, acne scarring, 
Um, and at that time, I decided to do a fellowship with Mitch Goldman and Richard Fitzpatrick, who have been pioneers uh, in laser surgery. Mitch, you know, being a pioneer with the IPL, Richard Fitzpatrick with the CO2 laser. Um, and so that took me into aesthetics. And now I've learned that a lot of our business is still injectable. So even though we are heavily focused, that's what we're known for worldwide as for our lasers. We have over 50 of them. Um, injectables still manage to be about 60% of our business because that's where the demand is. Yeah, sounds very much like Devin Lim, who we had on recently. He's um, obviously you know him well. He's good friends of yours, I gather. But, you know, he realized quite quickly that the cosmetic dermatology, it's sort of, um, you know, it's endless. You could lasers, injectables, devices, threads, like the, the, it just goes on and on and on. So it's multifaceted. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I guess having all those modalities just allows you to get such a, a better result for your patients. You're looking at the skin holistically, not only from texture and tone, you're looking, you're able to address volume and shape and sagging and all those sorts of things. So it's nice having that, that full arsenal of, of tools at your disposal because I guess most people don't have, a, have the luxury of having those amazing lasers to work with. Yeah, no, it's it's a blessing for me because I'm able to uh, not utilize just one thing to get an aesthetic result. Uh, we all know that it's mul- it's a multiple tissue issue. Yeah, um, multiple tissues are aging, um, and so I'm able to address all of them, um, and that way I, I strive to give them a more natural looking outcome. Yeah, which laser do you prefer to use the most? I mean, I know we're talking about stimulators today, but just I'm just interested from a laser perspective. I mean, how do you address? all these concerns you have a million lasers or you've got like a multi-platform like a cyton or something like that how do you what do you, so what do you have, what's your yeah, weapon of choice have, i know so we actually have 25 rooms we do have oh 50 my God. lasers oh my um, Jeez. and so because there's six doctors and one extender so we have a pretty uh, big practice uh you guys are welcome to come if you're ever in southern california <laughs> nicole has visited and Gosh. colleagues from canada have come so um it's always nice to have people and welcome people and greg Gosh. goodman's come as well uh so we um the our our workforce is the ipl living in southern california very similar probably to like sydney there's a lot of photo damage your 20 year olds are covered in freckles where i grew up in the midwest we don't have as much sun damage here, uh, but in in San Diego, it's almost expected. And so we start utilizing that quite early uh, in patients. Uh, so that's our workhorse. I'd say that um, the second most popular device, because we kind of always take a look at our numbers, uh, is Altherapy. Mm-hmm. Altherapy is our third uh, highest revenue producing procedure. It's our uh, third most utilized device. Um, and uh, again, it's just because it addresses the element of laxity. There's only so much that you can accomplish with fillers without making someone potentially look a bit almost like a saggy balloon, you know? Um, so that's quite popular. Um, and then I'd say CO2, but when we do a CO2 resurfacing in our office, it's not just with one, uh, device. Um, we, we took on Richard Fitzpatrick's protocol. So we'll do a pulse dye laser or an IPL to address the vasculature or Q-switch Alexandrite to address macular seborrhea keratosis or individual lentigenes. Um, then we'll use, uh, a fully ablative CO2 by luminous. So, um, the, the, you know, you can just change the active effect settings to, uh, UPCO2 settings. And so the ultra pulse I'll use around the eyes and the mouth, um, because I find that the fractionated CO2 doesn't give me the results 
that a fully ablative CO2 can give me. And then on top of that, I layer a fully ablative erbium uh, by Cyton, and then I'll do the fraxel repair to blend it all out. So when we say oh. CO2 resurfacing, it's it's like six different devices. Wow. Jake would love that. Sounds like a Star Wars episode. Some yeah. lasers everywhere. <laughs> I would absolutely love to see what these people look like each week. <laughs> like a burnt chip. <laughs> it is. I know. And I mean, they see the results that we post on Instagram, but then they don't really know what the, what the, yeah. what the whole downtime looks like. But truthfully, I believe in it so much. I even had it done twice. So wow. it works. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, when we were speaking to Devin, one of the dynamics that I found interesting was because you guys are dermatologists, presumably your patients are kind of expecting you to focus on skin as well as the face and the structure. Whereas a lot of injectors, including myself, you know, people come for injectables and they can yes. have the most terrible, crepey, sun damaged, pigmented skin. And yet it's, it's kind of off the table. They don't want to address it. They don't want to talk about it. And I'm not an expert to address it either. So it's kind of like difficult to have that conversation with people who've got skin concerns when they don't almost see it themselves. It's, it's kind of a weird dynamic. I, I, I'm with you. And you know what? I've seen it also shift. People, even though they know I'm a dermatologist, they're still just there for the injectable. And it's obvious that they're covered with static rhytids and they're covered with lentigenes. They're never going to appreciate the results of their neuromodulator injectable because it's just covered with pigment and all other kinds of things. And I'm a derm, you know? So, and I think it's just because injectables are like kind of top of mind because that's what they continuously get fed, whether it's direct-to-consumer advertisements by the companies or whether it's just what they see on, on social media platforms. Yeah. And so um, that's why it's like top of mind for them. And that's what they're coming in for. And their skin is not even what they're thinking about. Well, to be honest, that's what's driven part of this podcast and the topic of biostimulation because, you know, we've had uh, things like sculpture available for years. And yet even as an injector, you know, I've trained in it, but I don't push it because even I don't have the patience to wait three, four, five months to see those results. So I think even the injectors are kind of like, I need it now. I need a result now. Otherwise, it's hard to get that patient satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm really interested to hear what your experience is with sculpture and, on, and many of the other devices. So I'd say that um, sculpture, my interest in sculpture started more on the body than it did on the face. Um, we were one of the first to publish on chest wrinkles with the use of sculpture in 2010. Um, we even created a chest wrinkle scale because we were trying to get it approved by the FDA at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it got sold to a different company, so they dropped the project. Um, and so it's it's really been to try to meet the patient demand on the body where we know that many hyaluronic acid fillers, you need loads of it and it becomes quite expensive uh, to give them that result. It doesn't last as long. And then even with lasers and devices, you have to really increase your energy and your density to get the result that you need. And you don't have as much pilosebaceous units for, for patients that are listening 
uh, in. You don't have as many stem cells to heal from. Um, so you can get these beautiful results on the face with your lasers. But then when you start working your way to the body, it's hard to accomplish that result. It can happen, but it takes multiple sessions and you have downtime. You're red and then you become post-inflammatory, you become brown. Uh, and so that's not an option. So to meet the demand, we had to start exploring the utilization of some biosimulators. Um, at the time, there wasn't much literature on how much collagen they stimulated. Now we have a lot of work from Yana, I'm not going to butcher her last name, but from Russia, who has shown that you have about an increase in 15% of elastin uh, at four months, 30% by uh, seven months from the use of, let's say, dilute calcium hydroxylapatite. With um, PLLA, they haven't done as robust of studies to show how much collagen you end up stimulating, but we would find that there was an improvement in chest wrinkles by at least one point on a five-point scale um, as early as after two months of treatment on the chest, uh, two treatments, two months later, uh, to up to even three treatments. So we could give them these results that would take many laser treatments to get with much more downtime. So that's, that's where, um, we started working on it. And then from the chest wrinkles, it went to the inner arms because in San Diego, just like in, you know, certain parts of Australia, people have a lot of sun damage. So they have these perfectly kept up faces, but their bodies just don't match. So um, in an attempt to meet that need, uh, we started seeing that sculpture did a pretty good job. And so when you believe in something, I think you can then impart that to your patient, like, no, you know, I've seen excellent results. This can do wonders for your face. And so that's where I've transitioned to using it more on the face uh, because I see that, and I'm sure you guys have seen it too, 10 years of injecting just HA to the face and if you haven't done any lasers, there's like a bogginess that you can almost get. And Sculptra almost creates a bit of like skin retraction. Mm -hmm. um, maybe there's some underlying fibrosis going on. They haven't, you know, they've only done some forearm studies to show this, but it does kind of like tighten the entire envelope so that it can almost hold your filler tight onto bone. Um, so that's been my experience and that's been my evolution with the use of Sculptra. It's like a, um, a canvas repair tool. As I said, yes. to, you know, if you're painting on a canvas, it's terrible. It doesn't matter how good the painter is. Yes. You're not going to get a great result. If you have a nice canvas that's tight and taut, then, you know, people like you and Jake can go in and work your magic with uh, fillers because, as you said, otherwise you get that sort of augmented sort of look. And everyone starts looking the same and they get that sort of generic sort of overfilled look and people lose their individualness in their face. They yeah, get it almost looks away. heavy. Yeah. But um, sculpture has been around for a really long time. It got a bad rap here in Australia. There was an incident where it got injected and it was someone injected it and I think it went into the mouth cavity, picked up something from the mouth and then got deposited in the dermis and it ended up being this, this massive nightmare of a situation. And, and it just never really got the traction that I think that deserved, like a product that's been around for a long time but hasn't got the love that it should have here in Australia. It's just got a bad rap i think through incorrect injecting techniques and just people maybe just wanting that instant result but it sounds like it's something that should be used in parallel with things like fillers because it's like working I, on the I canvas agree. in the background yeah i almost alternate it now um yeah and, and and i think what i agree with you david i think something that did not help it is that it was approved at a reconstitution of four cc's hmm, right. which 
made it very hard to kind of sprinkle all over the face. You were just trying to like improve a nasolabial fold. And that's probably not the best utilization of the product. Uh, I think it really shines and kind of, you know, sprinkling it throughout the entire, um, almost on bone, as well as in the subcutaneous plane. I always tell my patients that like the collagen that it stimulates is not living in a vacuum. So it's not like these little signals that are occurring between cells. It's like this just stop at the subcutaneous plane. There's a lot of feedback to the dermis as well as onto bone and all of the SMAS and fascial planes in between. So I think that that's why you get an overall contraction of that tissue. Um, but uh, in, now in the United States, they are doing trials with a better reconstitution, which is what we've all been using it at to minimize those side effects, which is at eight cc's of uh, sterile water instead of the you know three to four that it originally came in when it was approved here for 2004 for HIV lipoatrophy. So I think with those modifications and just learnings uh, that we've learned, don't put it very close to mimetic muscles of the mouth or like um, the eye where there's a very thin space between muscle, skin, and fat, um, you're going to have less incidence of product accumulation and, and nodules. Sabrina, before we go into the specifics of uh, Sculptra and Radies, and I don't know if you guys use Alance, it's the other one that we have here in Australia, should we just, I guess, describe what collagen is and what is happening to our face when we're aging, particularly the skin? Because I think a lot of injectors even don't understand really what is happening. And so their modality of treatment is wrong probably from the start because the premise is wrong. So can you just explain what collagen is, why is it important, where does it go, why are we losing it, all those things? So it's not just collagen, it's also elastin. So collagen, I like to think, is like the scaffold of our dermis, the dermis being the second layer of the skin. Um, so they're made up of these fibrils um, that basically break down as early as the first year of life. You're already breaking down that collagen. And then things that break down that collagen, this scaffold being what participates in the thickness of the skin, um, are, you know, like eating uh, a lot of sugar. Uh, that creates these, what we call ACEs or these uh, end acetyl end products that bind onto collagen and literally force it to break down. Uh, fried foods, grilled foods, broiled foods, all of these things uh, can do this as well as high temperature processed foods like gluten. Yeah. So many of the things that we're coming into uh, contact with, UV light, which is the reason why we say you know, that sun protection is your number one anti-ager because it minimizes the breakdown of this collagen or this scaffold. Um, but that participates in the thickness of the skin. And then there is the element of elastin. Elastin um, is uh, what contributes to the ability of the skin to recoil right back down. And so when people talk about crepiness of the skin under the eye, it's not just a breakdown of collagen, it's also elastin fragmentation that also starts to occur as a function of age. Yeah. Um, and so the reason why we see these changes so markedly uh, beginning around the eyes is because the, uh, the periocular skin is the thinnest skin of our entire body. So you don't have the reservoir to afford that skin or that collagen breaking up even more and thinning that skin even more. And it's juxtaposed to thicker skin of the cheek um, and so you have thin dermis that's about 700 microns at the level of the eye, 
And then you have cheek skin, which can be in some sebaceous skin up to even two millimeters thick, but generally about one, 1.5 millimeters. Um, and so what we're trying to preserve is the integrity of the thickness of the skin, as well as its ability to recoil back onto the underlying fat. Yeah, the under eye is one of those areas that a lot of patients say, oh, hey, doc, you know, I've got some fine lines here. Can you just put a bit of Botox and can be one of the worst things that you can do? Because it just makes the skin looser in some situations. Right, because the skin is so intimately associated to the muscle, uh, especially around the eye, which is why we're essentially injecting almost intradermally when we're doing our crow's feet injections. Um, and so when you relax that muscle, you are relaxing that already lax skin. Yeah. Uh, and so it can pull up, especially immediately um, through here uh, and make someone look even older. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So would you use, you could do sculpture around that area, did you say? Were you, so you have to be careful with sculpture yeah. because that is an area where there's not a lot of forgiveness. The, the limitation with sculpture is that the PLLA um, it's not that it causes granulomas per se. If you look at the literature, um, it, it's been very hard to, to actually look at any case that has been biopsy proven for embodied granuloma. Um, because what's happening is that those particles are just aggregating into muscle. So areas that are hyperdynamic, such as the perioral area or the periocular area, if that product aggregates, then it can cause a nodule. So it's not your classic late onset, you know, inflammatory nodule. Uh, this is more of just a, a, a product accumulation. So when you biopsy it, you just see a bunch of PLLA bunched up. Um, and so that's why around that, around that area, uh, you have to be very careful. You can inject like on bone, it would be a much more advanced technique, injecting kind of on bone, very tiny um, aliquots. Um, and I almost kind of, when I'm fanning, I, I kind of come up to the rim, but I, you know, I'm just drawing like nice linear retrograde threads. And in that process, I will thicken up indirectly some of that dermis because again, it's, it's a cascade. It's all those cells are, are talking. And so the dermis does thicken up, uh, but I don't put anything directly i'm not trying to really build that area uh, with pla can you just like summarize what a biostimulator is i mean that class of filler like david said it's a bit of a mystery to a lot of injectors because it, i don't know why it's just not been taken up as strongly uh, at least here in australia um so there are a lot of people who have never used sculpture they've never seen radius they've never seen a lance they've never used a pdo mono thread so how, how are these things working? How are they acting as, you know, we're often told it's the fertilizer of the skin. How, how is that working? Right. So we talked about how collagen is the scaffold, right? And so um, PLLA, so these are great questions. So PLLA and calcium hydroxyl appetite uh, originally actually used a lot in orthopedic surgery um, in patients who had a lot of osteopenia uh, in attempt to try to build bone. So Bone, just like skin, is made up of collagen type 1. And so we learn and take a lot from orthopedics if we really look at what we're using. They also use a lot of hyaluronic acid. Um, and so for joints, as well as for certain matrices that they put on to the bone um, in an attempt to kind of build the bone before they put an implant in to hold these heavy, you know, metal uh, or porcelain implants. And so 
what you see in the orthopedic literature, because that's where a lot of the literature on how PLLA actually works on bone comes from, um, what you find is that it, you inject it, and PLLA is essentially a product that came from France, if I know my if my history serves me well, uh, in that a, I think it was a French dermatologist that noticed that after you know she injected it, when she went to biopsy it, there was a lot of new collagen production. And so she thought of grounding it up and resuspending it in water and injecting it to be able to get that neocollagenesis effect. So uh, a rebuilding of that scaffold, if you will, that we talked about, you know, what, what collagen does for our dermis. Um, and so that's how its utilization as Sculptra um, and then Sculptra aesthetic uh, has, has evolved. Uh, but the molecule itself has been used as a scaffold product to build bone in orthopedics for, for a while. Same with calcium hydroxylapatite. Now, if you speak to the companies, there's no head-to-head study with PLLA or calcium hydroxylapatite because I've been waiting for it. Let's do it. To see, <laughs> I know. To see which one, in fact, builds more neocollagenesis. But the companies will say that one is... Um, fibroblastic and one is causing more fibrosis um, if you believe in this that one is causing more scarring you know um, and one is actually uh, promoting true neocollagenesis Uh, I think that that's just a way to spin it I I think we would really need more studies comparing the two Uh, in orthopedics they actually use a combination of both when they um, are doing their procedures um, and their their matrices and their pastes are a combination of PLLA, calcium hydroxylapatite, as well as hyaluronic acid and even growth factors that they incorporate into it. Um, but in for the purposes of aesthetics, there is no head-to-head study to show if one creates more collagen than the other, and if one is a more like fibro uh, a fibrotic response versus the other one more fibroplasia response. So just to be clear, so PLLA is polylactic acid, and that is Sculptra. Calcium hydroxyapatite is red S, as we know it. Yes. I apologize for not being clear. And PLLA is basically a constituent of our suture material. Yeah, I was going to ask that. <laughs> for over 100 years, right? So it's, you know, both are essentially considered biologically inert. Our bodies don't recognize it necessarily uh, as foreign. We know that suture material gets broken up quite quickly, right? Um, and so, uh, and calcium hydroxylapatite is also used in dentistry uh, in some of the temporary fillings that they utilize and molds that they utilize because the body doesn't recognize it uh, and fight, it creates as much of a, of a foreign body reaction to the product. Right. Jake hates me because I always ask questions. I go off topic and Jake, <laughs> so I'm going to ask something. No, no, see I, Jake's I love just it. shaking his head. So um, one of the things that Jake mentioned was the challenge of getting patients to, I guess, agree to these treatments and wanting that instant gratification. How do you go about um, overcoming that objection or, or convincing, or not even convincing, I guess, educating your patients in such a way that it, they are happy to go along with those treatments? How, how do you sort of overcome that need for like patients wanting an instant result when you're consulting them? Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I tell them that this is a, uh, a journey, you know, it, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. Um, and so that 
typically I don't use, I may not necessarily use Sculptra on my first intervention with someone um, unless they're actually coming in and they've quite educated. And so, you know, a lot of patients today are actually quite educated. They've read and heard about all this stuff. They're afraid of, you know, this rubbery kind of doughy look puffy look and they've heard that sculpture won't give it to them or radius won't give it to them. So um, there is that subset of patient that has looked it up and try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, then I try to educate through my, you know, social media outlets, you know, that I've alternated with this and that. Um, I try to show them that my goal is not to give them a radical before and after, you know, maybe in just like one session, but that it's to look your best version of yourself five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road. Um, And so I show them photos, just, you know, almost like going through a story of what HA did, what the combination did. Um, and so with that understanding, then they trust. I mean, uh, I think that I think MERS did a, a big study like 5,000 consumers, 10 countries, figuring out what was the number one reason a patient elects to go to any of us after they, on average, have seen about 2.4 providers. And and the number one reason is trust. So they have to trust us. And so when you're educated uh, and you know about this stuff, in my experience, and and you're voicing this and you're you're telling them this, then uh, it hasn't been, I don't have to sell anything. I'm just telling them what I know. I'm telling them what I do on myself because I believe in it. Well, it's like going to um, it's like going to the gym. You're not going to notice a result in your first session, right? You need to put in a few months of hard work before you see a result. I guess it's the same thing. Yeah. How do you explain um, the result that they're that you're aiming to achieve with a biostimulator? Because a lot mm. of people can understand contour or shape or fullness. So, what, what do you what words are you using to describe the biostimulator? Um, and so, with my patients. I will generally tell them, you know, do you notice that, you know, your skin, and maybe this is where the bias is, you know, that a patient is selecting me because I'm a dermatologist. So somewhere there is a selection that probably occurs, whether it's conscious or unconscious. Um, you know, I'll go through what bothers them. And I'm like, eventually I usually say, and have you noticed that your skin doesn't look as, um, it looks more dull than it used to be. Um, it doesn't glow as much as it used to. Uh, and contributing factors to that are not just collagen or elastin, right? As we get older, our skin is just not turning over as much. So our stratum corneum is piling up on our skin, um, adding to a dullness. Um, and then because our dermis is almost, if you think of it, like photo damage almost is histologically looks like a wound, right? Your collagen is broken down, your elastin fibers are fragmented, and it's not an ideal or healthy environment for your own hyaluronic acid, which is rapidly being produced um, to produce as much. So you're not even creating your own amount of optimal hyaluronic acid to hydrate your skin. Mm. So you don't have a, a healthy dermis. So things are not optimized to work. And so I do go into this, believe it or not, a lot of my patients are like, okay, yeah, no, I have noticed that it's dull. And so we call it like the sculpture glow. Um, that's what, you know, so then I'll show them photos like, okay, we will accomplish this with HA, but as far as your skin, the lasers will do this, but also consider once a year, just an injection, you know, pan facially of a little bit of PLLA to give you that glow, you know? And so with that understanding, patients are, they, they get it, especially when people go into menopause, because my patients can tell, and I'm sure you guys have had it too, that patients like I aged overnight, yeah. like 
and they probably honestly they probably did because that drop in estrogen and those changes in menopause you lose 30 percent of your intrinsic ability to create new collagen in that three years 30 percent all in three years so they're they're they'll do anything so i tell them it's not just lasers lasers plus biostimulators plus microfocus ultrasound will optimize your collagen production because right now we have to throw the kitchen sink at it mm. I was curious um, what your protocol is like for treating the body. I mean, how are you sort of uh, adjusting your technique? I mean, you, how many bottles are you using? Are you sort of just, uh, yeah, do you sort of do the whole body? You're just doing areas. Seem, I'm trying to get my head around how you treat the body. It's such a big area. We go it's through what's area. like sculpture first and then radius because they're quite okay. different, I think. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. I'll notice that there are certain areas of adhesion where you don't have a lot of laxity. So areas that like that include lateral aspect of the arm, right? People aren't coming in for crepiness there. Areas where like you have fasciolata, people don't come in for lateral thigh laxity. Maybe they have some cellulite, but they don't have a lot of laxity. The flank. So there are areas that you don't ever have to really you know, you don't get complaints about, you maybe have excess, excess fat in those areas, but it's not a skin laxity issue. Areas of skin laxity or wrinkles are historically the decolletage, right? But even after you midclavicular line laterally, think about it. You don't see a lot of wrinkles midclavicular line or laterally because you don't get a lot of sun exposure there. Um, it's usually inner arms where you get that crepiness. That skin is just a bit thinner than the skin outside more laterally on the arm. So it's not, I don't have to cover the whole surface area of the body because it's just a function of anatomy and how your skin anatomy is different in different areas that allow me to be able to concentrate in specific areas. Um, with the abdomen, because of childbirth, it's usually anywhere basically on top of the rectus abdominis muscle. That's the area that typically can get lax. Lateral to that, it's there's a lot of good adhesion between your fascial planes and your skin. So you don't see a lot of laxity, let's say, along the flanks or crepiness of skin along the flanks. Inner thighs, it can be the entire length of the inner thigh, as well as the anterior thighs, the knees. The thighs, for the, for the most part, except the lateral thighs, are areas where you do see laxity throughout. Mm. And then think about it. You never see laxity of the calves right? Or the anterior legs. And so it's a function of just how thick the skin is and how much fibrotic, like how much fiber septa you naturally have in those areas. Flanks are more fibrotic than let's say abdomen. And so fiber septa also made up of collagen, right? And also degrading as a function of age. So it's not just the dermis, it's everything that runs in between. So areas that I focus on are just all the areas that I mentioned. So chest, inner arms, abdomen, specifically over the rectus abdominis muscle, if you can kind of map out and visualize that area, inner thighs, anterior thighs, and then sometimes the posterior thighs, although that tends to be very fibrotic if you think of it. Mm. And so now if I'm covering those areas, I would say that for the chest, I never need more than one vial. For an arm, usually one one vial. So pretty much two of my hands, which are very small hands, mm -hmm. but that's usually what ends up being like one vial. So it's a surface area uh, issue. And if you want more results with Sculptra, you do more sessions. You don't mm -hmm. do more vials in one session. That's how you end up getting lumps and bumps because you're relying on neocollagenesis. That's part product, part 
your body's response. Right. Okay. What about the neck? Sorry, Jake. You would have- I was going to say, who would yeah. be a bad candidate? Are there any people where you just say, Do you know what? I, I don't think this is going to work. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised. I, I've done it on seven, 70 year olds with like bad photo damage, right? Hormonally not optimized. Fibroblasts, probably extremely senescent. And even then, they have the best results because they started off so bad. Yeah. So because of my experience with seeing it through the entire spectrum of people responding, um, you know, the people that I'd say don't, I don't know. I, I think the people that have almost that thinner crepe skin respond even better than maybe your 45-year-old that has thicker skin mm. that's a little more glamorous. That, that person may not see it as much or it may take more sessions. Um, but I, I see results. I see results in everyone, but I think it's more expectation. So what does the person want? If they want a facement of everything, everything to be gone, if they want a surgical result, yeah, then, and, then forget it. Just like with everything we do. Yeah. But I always tell them, what are your alternatives for chest wrinkles on the chest? There's no surgery that I'm aware of for the arm a brachioplasty scar across the entire length of the arm. And even that, that just addresses the laxity here. It doesn't really do much for the skin change. Mm. For for the inner thighs or even the anterior thighs, if you do a thigh lift, you only really get stretched 10 centimeters from the incision site. So most of what you're showing off when you're wearing a skirt or shorts is past 10 centimeters from the incision site. So you don't really have other options, Yeah, you know? So from that place, they're like, okay, for now the abdomen you do, they can do an abdominoplasty. Um, but then, you know, what's the morbidity and mortality associated with that and the downtime, you know, and some mm-hmm. people it's like almost three weeks and you have a scar to show for it. So I put all of those things in perspective and then yeah. I let patients make their own decision. I guess what I was asking is because for modalities like PRP, that's really relying on the the patient's own ability to heal. Whereas this is kind of a bit of a mixture of their healing response, but also a product. So it's kind of, it's kind of a halfway between a traditional filler and PRP. It's kind of in the middle, if you know what I mean. Yes. Um, Yes. The substance is the same if you inject it in a 70-year-old or a 20-year-old, right? And then the inflammatory cascade is probably going to be about the same, you know? If you're healing from surgery at 70 or 20, you're going to have to heal the same, right? Um, You're going to have to probably create as much inflammation to close that wound. Mm -hmm. Where with PRP, it's a little different in that you're drawing plasma. If you're a 70-year-old, it's 70-year-old platelet-rich plasma. Yeah. If you're a 20-year-old, it's 20-year-old platelet-rich plasma. So what you're injecting in is a little different. It's not as consistent. And because of that, the response that you're going to get or elicit is going to be different from the 70-year-old versus the 20-year-old. Yeah. And that's why if you've got a smoker whose diet's not great, who's got, you know, other stuff going on in their life, PRP might never work because you're just starting off with crap, basically. Exactly. And then it's also the microenvironment. So those are, you know, growth factors uh, that we're essentially injecting into an area to tell the body, hey, you know, to tell those reservoir resident stem cells, hey, look at me, you know, start laying down whatever it is, whether it's in the, you know, hair um, or whether it's skin, dermis, wrinkles, right? 
But if the reservoir in that area, that microenvironment is not optimal, um, I don't think you're going to see as much of a result. One of the things you mentioned was, you know, uh, face and body not matching. And the area that I always am drawn to is someone's neck. You can look at someone's face and they look immaculate. And then you look at the neck and you go, hmm, something's not right there. Is there any utility for using these products in that area? You didn't mention the neck, but I'm just curious. Is it an area? Yeah, so this is such a great question. Thank you for the two areas where I don't use PLLA are the neck and the hands. It goes back to my point, areas that are extremely dynamic because the platysma is about three millimeters deep, you know, essentially two millimeters from the epidermis. And it's about in the lower neck, it's like, shoot, it's like 0.5 millimeters from the epidermis. You don't have a lot of subcutaneous fat in the lower neck. And so now you're sliding some cannula or needle in that place. That product is conglomerating in the platysma. And then you're talking and laughing and smiling. So there's a lot of product buildup. And so in one trial that we did, um, we did one retrospectively. And then Doris Hexel did the largest one in over 500 people in Brazil. And the incidence of nodule formation was 20% on the neck. Wow. And when we looked at it retrospectively and published on our experience, because we do a fair amount of PLLA, it was 12% on the hands. Mm. So there's plenty of other products that you can utilize without that risk. I do use calcium hydroxyl appetite. So uh, in these areas and for whatever reason, and it may be, this is actually good, good segue into a difference between them um, is that the calcium hydroxyl appetite sphere is circular. Uh, PLLA is a more spiculated molecule. And so the thought is that you, the thought is that you induce more neocollagenesis because it's more spiculated with PLLA versus the round microsphere. This is just, it has, again, no study head to head, but that's the thought behind why you don't see the same nodule formation or product aggregation happen on the neck with calcium hydroxyl appetite or on the hands. On the hands, we participated in the trial that got the product approved. And when we injected Radius in the hands, we weren't diluting it. We were injecting 1.5 cc's of the classic when it was not plus with 0.3 cc's of lidocaine, so total 1.8 cc's, injecting two of those syringes per hand with a needle, which we know is not optimal either, but that's how the FDA wanted the trial, and doing boluses and like massaging it in, and still like the incidence of nodule formation was like less than 6%, and it always resolved by six months. So even when you inject it in the most non-optimal way with all that volume, you don't see a lot of nodules. So um, so there's something about it. That's why I use Radius exclusively in, in the hands. And in the, the neck, I will dilute it down. So I'll dilute it between one to two. So I'll use one cc of now Radius Plus, which has a little bit of lidocaine included in it, and two um, to two, so three cc's of normal saline, depending on the thinness of the skin, even 4.5 cc's of normal saline. Um, but if I'm being honest with you, I'm more of an old therapy fan. So mm. I'll prefer old therapy to the neck, um, even combined with maybe like a little bit of uh, uh, a non ablative fractionated laser to kind of tighten up that neck 
versus doing the injectable. That's been Mm. my experience. Sabrina, I'm always wary of people sort of listening to the podcast and they can't see the dynamic of you doing little things with your hands and stuff. I know, sorry. <laughs> and also some people have never... I'm such an expressive person with my hands. They've never <laughs> with red ES. So sculpture comes as a powder, doesn't it, in a, in a little glass vial. And then you yes. mix it up with uh, sterile water, which is kind of unusual in itself because we would normally use saline or other things. So you're saying that previously when sculpture was first launched i don't know 10 15 years ago it was with four mils of water whereas now we've doubled or even gone more than that it's now about nine mils right so it's three i think it was three mils of water when it was approved and one cc of lidocaine because again it doesn't have lidocaine in it yeah that's right Um, so you had a total of four cc's today uh, depending on the practice, you might see seven cc's of sterile water, one cc of lidocaine, or even eight cc's of sterile water, uh, one cc of lidocaine for a total of nine cc's versus four cc's. Yes. And and that was because you said that's still not on label. It's just something that we do. Is that right? It's still not on label. They're presently doing the clinical trial to get it on label for the first time. And so people can check that out at clinicaltrials.gov so that they can see where it is, where that study is in its development and when it might actually be complete. Okay. And the reason was because like you said, the, the nodules or the lumpiness that people sort of reported after was maybe just because it wasn't diluted enough and so that's how that's come about exactly it wasn't it wasn't reconstituted or suspended in in a formulation where it could be kind of spread out a little mm. bit more uh homogeneously fair yes. enough whereas now that we, yes oh. so it's very different isn't it it's like a thick almost looks like toothpaste yes and so you have the 70 percent of it is uh, a gel carrier um, and then 30% of this 1.5 cc syringe uh, is the actual calcium hydroxyl appetite spheres. Mm. That gel um, is thought to be broken down. So that's what it gives you initial an initial kind of volume in a way, right? Yeah. When you inject it, unlike water, uh, it's a more viscous uh, product. And so it actually will displace and create some volume. Um, so you don't only have the benefit of the calcium hydroxyl appetite sphere, but you also have some volume that the gel carrier is offering you. The gel carrier, though, does break down in some studies. Um, they usually show it going away within three to four months. Right, okay. And so by then, the thought is that the calcium hydroxyl appetite spheres have now been replaced with new collagen production to offset that volume displacement. Yeah, that I was going to say because like a lot of people are using radius for jawline or even more traditional things like nasolabial folds. So it, it's kind of giving you that mixture of uh, initial impact versus longer term collagen simulation. Correct, and so um, yeah, so it's one of those it's one of those unique product that's kind of does both, and so it doesn't rely on. Uh, hyaluronic acid drawing in a bunch of water. Um, and that can be good or bad. Uh, good in that then over time you don't get this bogginess or, you know, mm-hmm. puffiness uh, because calcium hydroxyl appetite is not doing that. Uh, it's just serving as a scaffold. Um, it's, it, and then it's just replaced with your own collagen and your own collagen doesn't create that, um, that look. So that's that's the advantageous part of it. The disadvantages, disadvantageous part of it is that um, as that gel carrier goes, depending on how much your body was able to replenish 
with new collagen, you may still need a little bit more product. Yeah. So where do you like using one versus the other on the face? I love using radius on the jawline, specifically of the man, of a man, um, because I do believe that it gives you more, uh, more of a sharp, harsher edge that is more masculine than maybe a softer jaw of a female. But in a woman that has no jawline to begin with, she can still benefit. She's going to probably need two sessions anyway of some type of injectable. So I might do one session with HA and then one session with uh, calcium hydroxyl appetite. Because in my mind, I still really do believe, well, and we've seen it, that calcium hydroxyl appetite does stimulate more even bone formation than HA. Um, and so, and there is a study comparing how much collagen calcium hydroxyl appetite creates versus uh, HA, specifically Voluma. Again, Yana published on this, I think in 2017, and it was like 20% more collagen production by the calcium hydroxyl appetite or the radius. Mm. So if I'm thinking, okay, collagen is not just in the dermis, but it's on bone too, then I do inject it along the ramus of the mandible uh, in an attempt to kind of thicken that up a bit. Yeah. Um, and because I know that that is in more a vascular plane, especially if you're injecting along the posterior angle of the ramus of the mandible. But then anterior to that, I do, uh, anterior to the masseter, I do work more with a cannula in the subcutaneous plane, just because you do have that antagonial notch or that notch right in front of the masseter where the angular artery or the facial artery runs. Yeah. Mm. I'm curious, like, how is it stimulating bone if it's just deposited on the bone? rather than into a fracture or something else? Um, because that product, when it sits on the bone, um, that calcium hydroxyl appetite, the very reason why they, they use it in orthopedics, they use it almost as a paste. Yeah. Um, that calcium hydroxyl appetite will trick the, in that case, the osteoblast to lay down collagen type one. Um, so it's a signal, it's a scaffold signal for the osteoblast. In the dermis, it's a signal for the fibroblast to lay down collagen type one. Um, and truthfully, I don't think that those signals live in vacuums. So think of how thin the skin is really here. If I'm injecting it into dermis, am I getting some tissue response at the level of the bone, I'd probably say yes. Um, We've actually seen, there is one study that Tatiana Pavacic did. Uh, She injected it with a cannula on the cheeks and then did MRI two years later and did see like this thickness. It was hard to see because you can't biopsy bone. That's the limitation that we're at. No one's going to, no IRB is going to allow us to go and biopsy the bone of a perfectly alive human being (laughs) on the face for an aesthetic reason, right? So there are limitations to what we do. But um, she, with MRI, could see that there was like a thickening of that periosteum. And the same has been seen with hyaluronic acid even. So in Japan, they did a study where they injected Voluma on the bone, super periosteal little depots, and then did MRIs again, like three or six months later. And they saw that later, um, there wasn't just the product there, but there was actually like a shadowing, like there was, they couldn't describe it again, but there was a thickening that they perceived on the periosteum. So it's doing something biologically to our tissue, very similar to probably what they see in our fetus. Mm, that's interesting. Whereas and what is the, the sculpture, on, sorry, sculpture on the face, just to finish the story. 
What, what about sculpture? Sculpture. So you're using it just for sort of, uh, like you said, glow, laxity, crepiness. So I do it for both. I do it with the same concept when, you know, so I inject it onto bone because I'm, I'm a firm believer that it's doing something, again, to the osteoblast to lay down collagen type 1, as much as it is doing it to the to the you know, to the fibroblasts because we're injecting it in fat. No one's injecting sculpture into the dermis. Um, everyone's really injecting it in the subcutaneous fat plane. Yeah. And even by doing that, it's thickening up the dermis, right? Um, and so in the study that I'm telling you about, they're actually measuring with ultrasound to see the dermal change, mm. even though the injection planes are not in the dermis itself. So we know that there's a lot of you know, intercellular signaling between the different planes of the face. Um, and so I injected on both, um, in both places, bone and then subcutaneous plane. What's the um, safety profile like now of, of the product? I mean, in terms of, you know, complications, side effects and so on, now that you've got these dilution issues um, a little more sort of, uh, I guess, better down in terms of what's safe and what's, uh, you know, you're able to repeat, you know, consistent results. What, yeah, what should so people we, expect? Yeah, that's a great question. You guys are so good. Um, so uh, we actually, uh, that was an abstract that was accepted, would have been presented at Monaco this year. Was a retrospective chart review that the company did on some of the biggest sculpture users in the United States. Um, I could pull up the numbers, but top of like top of the you know top of my head like. It was over, you know, like a thousand patients injected multiple times over, uh, I think the chart review allowed us to like look back up to five years. Um, and we were, most of us were doing dilutions of either eight to 10 cc's. Um, and the profile of like the nodule formation was extremely, it was not even, it was extremely low. It was less than 1%. Right. Um, so of course you're dealing with, you know, the people that are doing the product are experienced sculpture mm. users, you know, so there's that, there's that bit of bias in the study. Um, but you know, there was no grand, there's never been a granuloma. There was no granulomas in that study. Mm. Um, and, uh, patients did well. Yeah. And I guess, um, in terms of the big fear with fillers at the moment is the blindness situation. Yes. And I'm assuming, um, there were less, no less risky with this, with this product. There was no cases with that retrospective study. Right. Um, with there is in the literature one case of blindness. Um, the person was injecting periocularly, uh, mm. is how they describe it. They reported injecting. Um, so they, they, I don't think they know exactly which injection point caused the problem, mm. but they were doing like tear trough. When you look at the report, they were doing like around the eye and I think even a bit in temple. Um, and in that case, there was a case. Hmm. Um, and that's the case that I'm aware of. There might be others that just have not been reported. But of course, it's like, that doesn't mean that this product causes less cases of it. It's just that it's it's not as popular as an HA product. And so hmm. we see more cases with HA. It's just probably a function of it's all yeah. percentages. We, we do more HA. Yeah, it's the same with fillers. We we sort of went along happily for like the first ten years and didn't even know the concept of getting an occlusion with oh. fillers. So, <laughs> when you uh, think about how we just used to do stick stuff everywhere and we didn't even know how dangerous yes, it was. Yeah, you just didn't know what you don't know. I know it. Now, jumping back to body, because we've got a lot of questions on things like the non-surgical butt lift, and I know that's something that you're 
particularly sort of um, skilled at. So when and why would you entertain doing sculpture for the butt? Can you explain that? Yes. So again, I always tell my patients, this is by no means, because I've done a lot of fat transfer to the butt as well. This is by no means a substitute for a fat transfer to the butt. That's always going to give you, if you're looking for a lot of volume, that's going to give you, I think, in my experience, the, the best result. Yeah. Um, because you need tons of this stuff. You know, you need a tons of volume to make a change. I mean, I remember injecting the butt. It's like 100 cc's into the butt, bilateral cheeks. You barely could see an appreciable result in a before and after photo. So you have to kind of think of that, right? So that's why sculpture has, is, is more in favor because, well, gosh, you know, one bile diluted at 16 cc's, you do at least three bile's per cheek and you're kind of at like almost 48 cc's per cheek, right? Some people are promoting 30 bile's in one session, but we got to dial it back. This is not fat. This is relying on the body's ability to create new collagen. So I take lessons that we've learned from the face. No one's doing more than three vials in one face at one time. If you want more volume, you do more treatment sessions. You don't do more, if you want more, you don't do more vials in one session. Those are the learnings from the face because that's how you would minimize nodule formation. So I take those learnings everywhere else. But I think that people have forgotten the learnings from the face or maybe because it fell out of favor and people that are coming out from training have forgotten these things. Um, they're injecting 30 vials in the butt, you know? And so I always tell my patients, if you want more volume, we'll do more sessions, but why would I use this instead of fat? And I know that fat is ideal. It's because the people that need the fat in their butt are the people that don't have fat to take from anywhere else. Yeah. And so unless you're looking to give them some irregularity in their abdomen or their inner thigh to give them some fat in their butt, these people typically, they don't have, they don't have that. So that's all we have is Sculptra. Um, and so I, I will usually tell them that it'll give them a softer augmentation. I don't promise them like a huge, you know, celebrity. We all know the celebrity, uh, but, you know, okay. uh, and I don't know if they necessarily want that, you know, because what we haven't seen is what happens to that butt in 10 years when all of the, the ligaments that hold it up are also aging, that's you know, gonna, that's <laughs> going to be a big situation, right? Uh, so literally gonna be some good memes um, in the next few years. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, with that understanding, and I like sculpture because remember, again, it kind of causes a contraction. So it doesn't, I don't uh, it doesn't give like this like heavy fat butt um, for somebody who's usually petite already and doesn't have fat anywhere else. That kind of butt wouldn't even look right on them, you yeah. know. Um, and so I really love it more for the hip del. In a woman, that hip del starts to kind of go uh, with age, and it almost looks like a male butt. Men typically don't have much fat there, mm -hmm. um, and so. In women, it's a nice place to kind of soften that transition. I was watching um, one of your videos where you just, it was like a three minute demonstration and you were talking about, I think the patient initially wanted the banana roll removed and you said, no, 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 that would be worse because then you're going to lose support for the base of the buttock. Let's use Sculptra to, like you just said, contract and lift and give a bit more tone to the buttock. So yes. maybe we should be sort of talking in terms of toning rather than BBL? I totally 
I totally 100% agree with you. Um, because what we know is that as we age, our gluteus maximus is our largest muscle of our entire, you know, so I always go back to anatomy. This is why I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast to see an expert because the, the level of anatomy that we know can guide us with every decision that we make, you know, with any part of the face or the body. And so why are we even doing this? Because the gluteus maximus, which is your largest muscle in your body, for all those that work out, we always want to work that muscle out because you increase your metabolism. You know, you can eat more fries if you build that muscle (laughs) up because larger the muscle, better the metabolism, right? So that's your largest muscle. But that muscle atrophies like every other muscle as a function of age. And so we start to see a flattening of the butt because that muscle is holding up our subcutaneous fat and our skin. And so, yes, there's a trend for a bigger butt. Genetically, some people have, you know, flatter, smaller butts, but then you add age and it gets compounded. And so to your point, if you build the gluteus maximus muscle up, well, could you almost get some of that volume? So we did the trial using Cool Tone. Others have MSculpt, but it's that basically that high thumb technology, that electromagnetic stimulation technology that causes the muscle to contract enough so that it builds over time. Yes. And if you look at the photos, it's essentially doing that. Yeah. It's creating a rounder, fuller appearance to the buttocks. So to your point, it's toning, and that is building the volume that people are really asking for. So to add a bunch of fat to replace what muscle is, when muscle is the issue, you can imagine over time, that's just going to hang in sack. It's not going to look good for anybody. Yeah. Like Jake keeps looking for an excuse not to go to the gym. He's, he's wondering <laughs> if this is the answer. I've actually got a decent booty, so don't worry. It's all good. But one of the questions that we did get, and I think this is a good question, do you ever use Sculptra just for cellulite or is the improvement of cellulite just kind of a byproduct of uh you know improving just the general tone of the butt okay great questions okay so cellulite very complex issue generally um i always tell people if it's a dimple issue just true what i consider true cellulite to be um then I don't think Sculptra is the best product for that. I think you need something that's going to subsize the fiber septae that's made up of collagen that's holding that, you know, skin down, almost like a mattress pad, right? It's like the recoils that are holding that top of that pad down. So you need to cut those. Now, the the problem is that after the age of 30, there are studies that show that laxity makes the appearance of cellulite look worse. So now you have an element of laxity as well. As the dermis thins, so that scaffold of collagen is thinning, you start to see some of that fiber septae, you know, that waviness even more. And so there is a place when there's an element of laxity to treat with Sculptra, but I don't think it's going to make it all look better. Uh, if you really have those fiber septae causing those dimples and guys, I'm, don't kill me. I'm going to have to leave soon. Sorry. No, 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 that's fine. Uh, we've got plenty more. So maybe we'll do an episode two down the line on, <laughs> on our therapy or something else. Um, so how do you awesome. go about sort of dividing those fibrous septae? So in the United States, we use a product called Selfina. Okay. Um, I don't know if you guys have that in Australia. Yet. We've heard about you it. You guys get it. We keep on hearing about the holy grail of cellulite and it's come up a few times. So Yeah, it's it's great. So that's what we uh, that's what I used in my practice. Um, there's another product that is um, 
that just got approved um, about, it's called QUO, Q-W-O. It's um, basically uh, CCH, uh, Clostridium histolyticum, if you remember uh, that uh, anaerobic bacteria, uh, has an enzyme that like collagenase that it creates and the collagenase breaks up collagen. And so the thought is that it breaks up the collagen fiber septae that are holding that skin down. So you can also do it through lysis with that injectable. And so we've been involved in those trials since 2012 almost, and finally got approved about a month ago here in the States. And so that's another way that you can treat those uh, dimples. That's quite exciting. Well, I wonder when we're going to get that in Australia, probably 2030. We're always behind. <laughs> You're always the last to get the cool stuff. Well, you guys have a lot more fillers than we do. So not, that is true. not with everything. Yeah, well, wait till you get your hands on a new one called Volux. It's, going to, it's an amazing for the jawline. So I think um, people may shift and use kind of that product in the future for the jawline and that real projection that you were talking about. Awesome. Super excited about that. Awesome. Well, listen, I know that you're time limited, so maybe we'll end it there. But thank you so much. We've got a lot more to talk about. So maybe we'll get you yeah. back later on in the year if you've got time to share. Yeah, we need to talk about old therapy. We didn't get the Yeah, I would love that. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, David. I really appreciate you. No worries. Oh, oh, before you pleasure. go, do you want to just remind people how they get in touch with you if they'd like to um, come in for a chat or a consult or refer someone to you? Yeah. So if you're ever in uh, the Southern California area, I practice at Cosmetic Laser Dermatology in San Diego, California. And you can essentially just direct message me on my Instagram at sabrina.fabi. That's F-A-B as in boy, I as in India. Uh, And I'll be happy to connect uh, you with my office staff so that they can set up an appointment. Fantastic. Well, it's been fabulous having you on. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Stay it's been safe. Such a enjoy your dinner. Take, Take care. Enjoy Bye. your day. See you Bye. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests. 